Trigger warning, this podcast contains a deep discussion about grief and loss, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. and welcome to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Ben, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about the mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. I am your host, Freddie Cocker. Each episode, I check in with a very special guest. We have an atter about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. My special guest for today's show is a vent champion and someone who is trying to change the way men interact and engage with each other when it comes to mental health, something I am a big fan of. His name is Liam Laruel Mongolard. Liam is a writer and a trainee psychosexual therapist. He is also the author of the book Screen to Screen, The Spaces in Between, Conversations with My Closest Friend. In this episode, we discuss how the book came about and the ups and downs of his friendship with his best mate Damien that are told through its pages. We also discuss grief, growing up being a carer for his mother as a teenager, the realities of being a writer in modern society, the impact of pornography on men and boys' mental health, technology and loneliness. This is how our check-in went. Liam, thank you for joining me on the Just Checking In pod. First things first, how are you mate? And has the recent news about lockdowns, I guess, gradual fingers crossed end giving you a bit of a boost you know how are you coping right now yeah I'm I'm weirdly like excited and nervous because you know you make plans but then they just change in a week or two so we'll have to see what happens but from a personal point of view me and my wife are expecting a baby really soon and obviously I haven't seen my mom in a year she hasn't seen her parents in a year so we're kind of like are we gonna be able to see them will they be able to see the baby so fingers crossed things lift and they'll be able to hold the baby and we'll take some lovely photos I hope so, man. For the listeners, you wrote an article for Vent many moons ago, which is now a fully-fledged book, which we'll discuss in depth later in the pod. But initially, what was the reaction to the article then, and what has been the feedback to the book? Yeah, the reaction to the article, especially from um, kind of a mix of like a few strangers and close personal friends, it was really interesting to just see how it really hit a nerve with people. And not just because the article, obviously, is you know, to do with young men and male mental health, but especially a lot of women who are saying, oh, I understand my male friend or I understand my husband. I understand my boyfriend more after I read this. And that was really interesting to see how it touched people from, you know, different walks of life, different genders. I really took solace from that, the fact that it wasn't just speaking to that kind of audience, you know, it had a wider appeal. Wonderful. When we chatted off air, mate, I was expecting a fairly straightforward conversation about the book, but it turned into so much more. So shall we just crack on with the show and get to it? Let's dive straight in on this pod, mate. No mucking about and talk about your journey. So first things first, and I ask all my guests this question, walk me through maybe your early life, teenage years, family, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Liam we meet here? I mean, <laughs> early mental health experiences. My family is a, yeah, a panoply of issues <laughs> when it comes to the mental health. It was a very interesting upbringing. On the one side, I had my mom who'd struggled with her mental health since she was 15, 16. And then my dad, who kind of had an undiagnosed narcissistic personality disorder. So I had a good amount of source material there to learn all about mental health. I think for me growing up, what I kind of did with it 
seeing how it affected my mom, seeing how it affected my dad and my sisters to an extent, I kind of went, all right, I'll take that masculine approach of just shutting it all down. I was like quite cut off from my emotions growing up. You wouldn't think it if you met me. I was, you know, really funny, social, whatever. On the outside, that kind of what you saw seemed really personable and open, but actually it was kind of a well-constructed wall to kind of wall in my emotions. And as I've got older, I've started, yeah, just kind of taking those bricks out of the wall and um, yeah, learning who I am mentally. A large part of that was anxiety growing up. That was a big part of it. When you were 16, mate, your mum had a big relapse with her depression. What are your memories of that period and how did watching that relapse affect your mental health? Because I understand you weren't maybe a physical carer, but you were an emotional carer. Is that right to say? Yeah, definitely. I mean, my mum, you know, she still took care of day to day and everything. And But emotionally, I, I very much, our relationship was kind of inverted in some respects. You know, even though I was 15, 16, I felt, always felt a lot older <laughs> than I was it was interesting, my mum, because she did everything she could, you know. I couldn't wish her a better mum, but she had her difficulties. It's just hard when you're young and, like, you look up to your parents. They're, they're meant to be, you know, parents are meant to be strong. They're meant to be parental figures. They're meant to be the ones that you lean on. But in our case, it was often vice versa. Even though that was really hard at the time, as you grow older, I kind of look back on it and think, well, that informed me. That shaped me. I wouldn't be the Liam that I am. If I didn't have that upbringing, I'd be someone totally different. I tried to look on it as a positive, but it, it was hard having to, to be there emotionally for my mum because she had her considerable ups and downs with um, her depression and anxiety. You essentially had to encourage or maybe even force your mum into being sectioned. Such was her level of poor mental health at that point, Liam, which is something a child should never have to do for a parent. How difficult was that for you? And, and did it make you grow up pretty fast, like you said? Yeah, definitely. That was really when it all came to a head. Like my mum had always kind of had little ups and downs, but that was the big down, so to speak. It came to a point where I like, I kind of came into the bedroom and she she wasn't sincerely trying it, but she was kind of in a roundabout way thinking of taking her own life, not that she at all really meant it. Just walking into the bedroom and seeing that before my eyes and I was 15, 16, I kind of realised I'm just not equipped for this situation. Like I need help. So I phoned the ambulance kind of explained that my mom had been deteriorating for a week and then this had just happened and you know I found it so shocking I just didn't know what to do I need help the ambulance turned up and when the paramedics were there and they could see my mom's like erratic behavior people can often have this you know you can call it a psychotic break you can call it an episode but she was not my mom anymore in that moment and the paramedics basically advised me like we need to section her kind of thing I was so young, I was kind of like, well, what does section mean? You know, what, how does that work? And they, they were explaining it to me as my mum was, you know, just in her room, kind of lost to the world. It was at that moment that I had to just kind of pull my mum aside and be like, this is what's happening. Thankfully, she was still kind of was self-aware enough to realise what I was having to do, that these paramedics were in the house. It went from me kind of having to get a section to her as we took her down the stairs, kind of agreeing, OK, this has to happen. I'm glad that she kind of, even despite being in a real, really bad state, she had a kind of a touch of self-awareness to realise that I was struggling and that she had to agree to being sectioned for a, a period of time. Like you said, you internalised a lot of those emotions that you were going through at the time. Did anyone know at school about your family history or family background and were you able to get that support from education or not? No, not really. I, again, I, I kind of just hid that from friends and stuff. I mean, you know, I might imagine casually that my mum was a bit anxious, you know, just as people are, but I didn't actually say the full extent of it. Like none of my friends at the time at school knew that, that once she was in hospital and I was basically just running the house by myself, 
as things went by, you know, like I kind of realized I can't really manage all this by myself. I was also doing my GCSEs at the same time. So it was all just a bit like the only people I really turned to were Kate and Jerry, who were like family friends. They're like surrogate parents of mine now. I still go to Christmas dinner with them every year. My mom, we're like thick as thieves. They stepped in because they were neighbors. They lived like two roads over and they'd known me since I was two years old when I first rode a bicycle into their leg in the park. They said I was like this tearaway teenager and I came flying into them. So they'd known me since then, still know me now. And um, they were the people who really stepped in at that time. I went to live with them for about seven months. They actually took me into their home, you know, so it's quite amazing when you think about it. We're not flesh and blood, they're just neighbours and they said you can come and stay with us. Thankfully, your mum has made a really positive recovery with her mental health now. She loves a bit of yoga and meditation, I believe. So she's not she's not breaking down the stereotypes that all people with mental health love a bit of yoga and meditation. She's also taking a medication now, which is really good. How proud are you of her and the journey she's been on to get to this point? Honestly, I have no words because a lot of people, unless you've kind of been dealing with your own mental health or you have people who have had mental health issues, a lot of people can kind of be... Um, they can just view people with mental health as, as frankly weak and look down on people for you know not being uber successful or, or achieving great things or being incredibly outgoing but you have to understand that we all have a kind of area that we can function in and we can push that envelope a little bit and i feel like my mum for what she struggled with i'm so proud of her for where she's been dealing with anxiety and depression and being put on medication at 16 which was far too young in my opinion she's kind of managed this really hard journey to where she is now where she's just in a, in a much better place especially in the last year where lockdown is so challenging when you're dealing with issues like that and she lives alone so I think she's dealt especially the last year has dealt really well with that. I want to talk about your dad now because it's fair to say you went on a roller coaster journey with him whilst he was alive he's no longer with us. Your mum and dad separated when you were three years old I believe and you had a quite strained relationship with him for much of your life why was that? And give the listeners a bit of context about your relationship and the man your dad was. Yeah, it's um, it's hard to even know where to begin with my dad. He's such a big personality, how you even begin describing him. He came from incredible money. He, he grew up in the Jersey Islands. His family were like multimillionaires. They had multiple mansions and underground car park with Rolls Royces in it and all the rest of it. But I grew up in a council flat with my dad. And that kind of tells you part of that difference that happened in his life. He was an extremely political man, engaged. He was press officer for Militant in the 80s, close friends with Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy came to my dad's funeral, which was wonderful. He was a very politically engaged man, but to the point that like sometimes you felt like he cared more about ideas than people and like he cared more about what he was engaged in than his own kids sometimes. The main thing with my dad was he, he was effectively undiagnosed narcissistic personality disorder. Like when he walked into a room, everyone would notice him. He had a kind of aura, a personality, incredibly charismatic. Multiple times he made me and my sisters we ourselves with laughter, like that funny. But at the same time, there's a flip side to him where he very much only really cared about himself. Not that you'd notice it. To look from the outside, you think, oh, he's an incredible father figure, an incredible dad. You know, you meet people who have some parents who it's really painful where maybe their parents beat them, maybe their parents neglect them, they don't feed them. My dad was never like that. It was um, a far more subtle psychological kind of parenting issue which stemmed from that narcissistic personality where he would kind of like turn me and my sisters on each other play games with us tell me I was his favorite or tell my sisters you're more intelligent than her or she's more you know and it was a lot of these kind of weird mind games growing up which is a bit unhealthy through the years I kind of even though I was very similar to my dad I kind of realized that I was I didn't want to be like a mini him he often used to say 
you're my mini me, like Austin Powers. Like he would literally call me mini me. And I realized that first when I was young, I loved that. Obviously you're a little boy, you look up to your dad. And as I grew older, I realized, well, I don't want to be a mini you. I don't want to be narcissistic. I, I, I want to care for people. I want to be empathetic. I want to, you know, be selfless, all these kind of things that my dad didn't have. So we kind of drifted apart over the years because of that, because I kind of realized, I mean, it's, it's an ugly metaphor, but I viewed my dad a bit like a cancer. And the closer I was to him, the more I would get infected, if that makes sense. So I just kind of took a very cold decision to just completely step back from my father and didn't speak to him for years. For most of us boys, our fathers are our role models and our superheroes. And it, it takes us quite a long time to realize that they are humans like the rest of us. Was that realization that you didn't want to be him quite hard to accept? It really was. And it was multi-layered, multifaceted, because we were very similar in many respects. So he was a writer. He was a journalist. I wanted to be a writer. You know, he was extremely intellectually minded. And so was I. We grew up with the same interests, the same hobbies, hence the mini-me. We were so close intellectually in our interest, in our hobbies, our love of football, for example, on a mundane level, like so many things that were similar. So it's hard when you're that similar to actually be like, well, how can I be dissimilar? That was part of the issue where it's like, I was taking my distance from him, not talking to him, but yet kind of aware that I was weirdly walking very similar footsteps that he had done in his 20s. So then constantly being like, well, am I just turning into him without knowing it? That's still in my head now today in some respects. But that's, yeah, that's been hard to manage. The big turning point in you and your dad's relationship, mate, was your wedding. Can you tell me why that should have been nothing but a joyous event, if a little bit stressful, of course, but it ended up being this source of conflict between you? <laughs> yeah that, that's like that's like perfectly sums up my dad and the way he is we'd only met twice in the last seven years leading up to my wedding once was when he turned up unannounced at my flat he just he somehow I think he found, managed to find my address on the voting register I remember I was with my wife sitting on the sofa just chatting and there was a knock at the door and I opened the door and then there was my dad and you're like, hello, son, how, how are you doing? He had this wonderfully verbose, rich kind of bourgeois accent. That was the only time my wife had ever met him. And within five minutes, she turned to me, having spent the last four years saying, you should see your dad, you should engage with him, you should talk with him. She turned to me after five minutes and went, I totally understand why you don't have a relationship with him. <laughs> and it was like, there you go. You have to meet the man to really, really understand him. He kind of held us captive, talking at us for about four hours. I then managed to get him out of the house, didn't see him again for four years. And then in the lead up to the wedding, I went to his address in London, in Islington, had um, a hard but rich kind of wonderful chat with him and said, look, I'm getting married. This woman means more to me than anything in my life. I've been with her for X amount of years. We really want you there, even though you haven't been in my life. And it all, <laughs> typical my dad, it all blew up from a photo on Facebook. I, it sums up my kind of dad's narcissistic personality disorder. My wife took a photo of me. We had these little rocks. We collected these rocks from Brighton Beach. And the idea was that at the wedding, there would be a rock on your place at the table with your name painted on it. And she took a picture of me on, on the floor in the lounge painting these rocks. And my dad messaged me saying, just seen your photo on Facebook. I don't see my name on any of the rocks. Clearly, you don't care about your father. Where do I begin with that? It's like, even now, I just kind of want to sigh because <laughs> it's like, I've invited you to the wedding. You're my dad just show up for God's sake, you know, like do what's expected of you, do what's right, do what's loving. But instead he wants to have an argument about a photo on Facebook. And that was my dad. He would pick up on very small things in life and make 
giant molehill out of an anthill and that was him and so this this little argument kind of snowballed me saying stop being silly of course you're coming i've got a rock with your name on it stop being silly and it just snowballed and snowballed and then he just didn't turn up at the wedding which was really like if there was a coffin you know nine out of ten nails had been put in the coffin of our relationship and when he didn't turn up to the wedding that was like the last nail in the coffin for me it was i couldn't really come back from that you said your dad had experienced quite a lot of health problems in the years prior to your wedding you said he lived with chronic pulmonary adhena thank god i pronounced that correctly or cpd and had been in and out of ICU 15 times in the last decade, which was really eye-opening to me. How did those health issues add to the conflict? And maybe why did he end up letting you down? Maybe because of those? Or was it other reasons as well? Yeah, that certainly it put, it puts a considerable lens on the whole context. He basically, he smoked himself to death. He was an absolute addict to cigarettes and um, started at I think like 14 and never stopped. He had a few incidents in his life where he stopped for maybe a year, but then he ballooned, you know, put on loads of weight that affected his self-esteem. So then he'd start smoking again, kind of a vicious cycle. But for me, it was very, it was in kind of eye-opening in that I understood from the conversation when I went and saw him before the wedding, that one time when I went to London to meet him in Islington, I very much understood. It was clear he was kind of walking around the houses on the topic, but it was obvious in kind of what he didn't say in the subtext which was he didn't want to go to a wedding with like my uncles and cousins and all these people who had known him as a young man, hadn't seen him in 20 years. And he was going to turn up, frankly, overweight or borderline obese in a motorized scooter because he couldn't really walk, very badly breathing, you know, his hair thinning because he abused his body his entire life. You know, we, we are all vain to some extent as humans, so sit somewhere on a spectrum. We all like to take care of ourselves in some respect. And I was very aware that my dad, it was both a physical thing and an intellectual thing. He'd had a stroke when I used to live with him many years ago, which he'd half recovered from, but he still had slurred speech occasionally. And before he was a great orator, you know, he, he was a raconteur. He could have a whole room wrapped at his command as he told a rambling, hilarious story. Now he couldn't really do those things that made him him. And again, that was because he'd abused his body, had a stroke from smoking so much. And it all kind of led to this, what I realized, which was he didn't want to come to the wedding as the man he was. You know, if I was having the wedding 20 years ago, obviously I'd only be 10 years old, but if I was having the wedding 20 years ago, he most likely probably would have turned up because then he could have presented his best self. But again, that spoke to his narcissism for me as a son. I couldn't care how you look. I couldn't care if you had to come wheeled in on a trolley as long as you were there it would have meant something brilliant but unfortunately he couldn't kind of overcome his needs for my needs and he didn't he didn't come despite him doing that because of the qualities of his narcissistic personality disorder do you have any empathy with the, with those reasonings now or not yeah again that's why it's kind of gray and complex you know I, ne I never like to look at life in kind of dichotomies of black and white i can very much sympathize with him and i understand where he was coming from again he did a lot of these things to himself but just because you do something to yourself doesn't mean you aren't worthy of, you know, understanding and forgiveness. And that's why I, tr I tried to broach that conversation with him before the wedding and why afterwards we had kind of one or two exchanges on the phone. And I also wrote <laughs> after the wedding, I wrote probably the most, well, definitely the most honest and brutal letter piece of dialogue I've ever had with my dad. I, I laid out everything, how I felt about him and it empathized and it sympathized, but ultimately there was still too much in terms of a son to a father, I couldn't forgive, you know, that was that was too painful. So while there was empathy, I'd kind of reached a place where there was no more empathy to give. Last year, your dad sadly passed away. Did you manage to get closure or reach an amicable place in your relationship before he passed? Was he fully estranged at this point? And given the place that your relationship was in, 
how did you feel when he passed away? Did you go through the normal stages, I say in inverted commas, of grief? Or did you feel different emotions to maybe other family members who you've grieved for in the past? Yeah, it's, it's, it's still hard to talk about, actually, to be honest. I knew that he was going to pass away, you know, sooner rather than later. But in my mind, what sooner rather than later meant was I was expecting him to pass away in my late 30s, maybe early 40s. I knew he wouldn't live to see me, you know, getting older. I, I knew he wouldn't live till 90 or 100 because he just abused his body so much. But I didn't expect him to die three years after I got married. That, that was just so quick, two and a half years even. Even though you're aware that someone's unwell, you just, you know, sometimes you can be aware of something, but you can't actually be aware of what that entails and what that means and all the consequential feelings from that. And I remember I was at home, I was writing, it was early in the morning, and I missed a call from my sister, who I kind of have a bit of a hard relationship with because we were raised by my dad and he kind of caused these issues between us, which we're still working through. So I missed her call. And because we had a hard relationship, she uh, she texted <laughs> text me that my dad had passed away, which was a horrible way to receive the news. But it was kind of where we were as siblings. And I remember I was writing and I, I just look at my phone and just complete utter numbness, just like just utter numbness. I think I just just stared into space for about 20, 30 minutes. And then, yeah, it was, it was very hard to process because the previous question you asked me is a good question, you know, about the empathy you felt. After he'd passed, I felt so much more empathy. It still hurts me now because before he passed, my, um, my mom and my wife, Charlotte, they would constantly say to me, you know, think about talking to him. You know, when he's gone, you have no chance. And again, it's that self-aware thing of, I'm aware of that. I'm aware that once he's gone, there's no chance to talk to him. But I didn't act on that self-aware kind of, you know, factor. I knew it and ignored it, ignored it, thinking, we've got time, we've got time. He won't pass away in two and a half years. And then when he had passed, I was really left. I wouldn't say I went through all the stages of grief per se as they are laid out. But um, I certainly felt guilt because I, I started to question, well, should I have been more understanding of his narcissistic personality? Should I have been more? His upbringing was not normal by any means, by any means. He grew up in a very wealthy family. They gambled all their money away. He constantly moved house like every two years, uprooted, moved school, never kept his friends. And that was because his family was constantly gambling their money away. He had a very hard upbringing, extremely hard. And it was only then that I started to really think, well, to what extent was his parenting and his personality a product of how he'd been raised? And maybe I should have been more understanding. But the truth was, even though I felt that guilt, I was also aware that I wasn't, even though I was, what, 26, 27, I was still young emotionally. And if I had more emotional intelligence, maybe I could have been able to park those feelings of a child in one area and be more of an adult and a man and understand and where he was coming from, but I couldn't. So, um, even now, I, I still, sometimes I talk to him, you know, just like a little look up at the sky at night and I'll just say a word, even though I'm an atheist. I'll do that because it's kind of making up for the, the fact that I didn't in some respects. Maybe that's bargaining <laughs> as a stage of grief. I don't know. But I never really felt anger. It was always more kind of just numbness, that the feeling. And then um, I buried him in a local park in Brighton because he grew up in Brighton when he was young, which is, again walking in each other's footsteps. I now live in Brighton. It's like another weird kind of milestone along the road. But um, yeah, we buried him in a park and on the anniversary of his death a few months ago, of his birthday rather, a few months ago, I went there and I just sat at the park where we scattered his ashes. And I just spoke to like the trees and 
maybe some element of his life force is in the trees, who knows, but that felt like a nice way to keep in contact with him. But I'm still working through it in my head, I think. What would you say to him if he was listening to this pod now? And what do you think he would say to you? God, um, what would I say to him? I'd probably say I'm doing my damnness to take the best of you, Dad. That's probably what I'd say to him because, don't get me wrong, for all his problems, the good qualities are what I usually tell people about. Like if you ask friends and family in my personal life, I don't really have a bad mouth, my dad. I talk about the good characteristics and there were so many. I always focus on those and I'd probably tell him that that's what I do. You know, I, I remember those memories and I try to cherish those because when someone's gone, you, you can't wallow in that kind of those bad feelings, those bad emotions. You have to look at the positive because there's no real other way to do it. I remember you saying your dad would read you George Orwell books when you were 10, which is quite a unique, unique way of parenting. What are some of your other maybe happier memories of your dad that you hold close or or things that he said to you that you treasure or have they been overshadowed, like you said, by some of the conflict you had? Yeah, I wouldn't say they've been overshadowed because, again, I think it's that kind of that complex palette of colour. You know, it's not black or white. I have wonderful memories of him, like um, certainly the the reading of books to me because he he was a great raconteur great oratory capabilities and he would read these books to me and he'd put on all the voices of the characters and I mean we did read nice fun stuff like Narnia and Lord of the Rings but he also read you know Dorian Gray and Down and Out in Paris to me like I grew up with those kind of books from a very young age those are happy memories he he would also he would always take me to Toys R Us and let me pick out whatever toys I wanted which was kind of him making up for some of the other parenting capabilities he didn't have but um, football as well was a big one we really bonded over football to the point that my mad love of Arsenal was far more than his. <laughs> but um, we lived literally within the shadow of Highbury. So when Highbury would score, my dad would mute the TV and open the, the lounge window and we could hear the crowd like, <sighs> you know, coming in. So we really bonded over football. We would He'd always take me out for football to the point that he got me into Arsenal's academy at a long age. And he was like convinced that I was going to make it as a footballer because I used to like take the ball and run past everyone. Like, I like to play like dribbling, but... That was more his dream than mine, to be honest. But we really bonded over that. And whenever I play football, I think about him, to be honest. Let's talk about your book now and the reason we're doing this pod. As I said in the intro, it's called Screen to Screen, the spaces in between conversations with my closest friend. And it charts your friendship with your best mate, Damien. Can you tell me why you wanted to write the book and how you came up with its unique storytelling structure? Yeah, the book um, very much evolved just out of a kind of organic life experience. I've always, and I still do, I write fiction. While I was writing one of my novels, my relationship with Damien was changing. He was going through what he was going through and it was kind of affecting us. There was a period, you know, that is covered in the book where we didn't talk for so long. I think three, six months, we didn't talk, maybe longer. And that was just alien to him and me. We always spoke every single day for like 10 years. And I realised at that point, I started to look back through my messages with Damien I was kind of doing it as a way to just understand a situation, you know, like a scientist in a, in a laboratory will look at the, the data, will look at the experiment and see what they can learn. And in a weird way, I was doing that. I was trying to figure out what had happened to my friendship. And in doing that, I realized I should probably write this up because that's how I understand things as a person. I, I always use art to understand feelings and thoughts in my life. So I started to kind of write it as a passion project just for myself. But then as things evolved, I realized talking to lots of men around me, absorbing far more information and articles and peer-reviewed journals and documentaries, I realized 
oh wait this is actually an epidemic amongst young men and i've been completely blind to this and that's how the book kind of evolved i realized maybe i can help other young men by literally showing them our journey let's set the scene for the listeners and go right back to the beginning so tell me how you and damien came to meet how your friendship blossomed into something special and given that you both went to well one of you went to state school and one of you went to private school potentially that could have created a bit of a class divide but it didn't and you still got up to loads of mischief didn't you <laughs> yeah yeah that was it's kind of like a, a background fact almost that yeah we've we known him really consider it i met him at isha college he'd finished his school i'd finished my school totally totally different schools you know like i was just trying to avoid start getting stabbed and he was learning latin like totally different but at Isha College, which is a really good college, we met through a mutual friend called Andy. And when I first met Damien, it's just one of those things. You know how you sometimes click with people in life? I don't know if it's like quantum string vibrations, if you're into quant like quantum mechanics. And I, I love that. Sometimes I feel like some people just have a certain vibration in the universe and it and it chimes with yours and that's it. And um, yeah, we just hit it off as soon as we met. Also, it was an element of he was an introvert and I was an introvert, except he was obviously an introvert to everyone, whereas everyone thought I was an extrovert and I really wasn't. And that's really why we clicked, the fact that we were both introverts and we literally could count friends on one hand, even one or two digits. In that respect, that's why we clicked so quickly. And then we soon realised that we had just an unbelievable amount of similarities and hobbies and interests. And um, yeah, that's kind of where that went from there at that young age. Can you tell me a story about how you broke into your own house just to play FIFA? Oh, God, those are, those are the days. Those are the days. We were mad about football. He's a Chelsea fan, unfortunately, so there's no helping him there. But we basically, we we had this Friday, which was a horrible day because we both had a, a session in the morning. I think it was like English. And then we had nothing for five or six hours and then a session in the evening. And the thing with like teenagers, it's kind of like, well, do I have to hang around at college for six hours just for this last one? Not that I'm saying that people should do that, but that's just how we felt. You know, you really should, you should go to the library, shouldn't you? And like do some work and things, but... Instead, I turned to him and was like, do you want to go back to mine and play FIFA? Because my mum, I think she was out. She was out of work that day and I knew that. So yeah, we jumped on the nearest train, went back from Isha College, went to Wimbledon, took a connecting underground train to Wimbledon Park. And then as we came up the road, I opened my bag to check for my keys. And I've just gone, oh no. And I've realised my keys are on my bedside table right next to my bed. Mum's out. How the hell are we getting in? And that kind of summed me and Damien up because... <laughs> We should have just turned around then and just gone back to college or, you know, just gone to the park or something. But instead, we went to these builders, asked for their ladder, put the ladder up against the first floor, climbed up about 20 feet. I knew that that kitchen window was always unlocked because it's so high up, no one can get to it. So my mum never locked it. Opened that window, went in, went down the stairs, got the keys, opened the door, let Damien in. Result, played FIFA for a good six or seven hours. It was wonderful. It was all worth it in the end. But those are the kind of memories, you know, you hold fond, like just breaking into your own mum's house to play FIFA. It's just like, oh. I love that. It just reminds me of so much nonsense that my friends have gotten up to in recent years. And that's that exact logic is how I would describe it. Like you should have just gone back to college. You're like, no, 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 no. We're going to get in. We're going to do this. <laughs> yeah, commit fully to this. On the format of the book itself, mate, it's A3. And most of the conversations are in text message style. You said you made these decisions because you wanted it to be accessible to kids and cater to their reading habits, which I guess a lot of teenagers aren't as much as in favour of kind of really, really long listens or really, really long reads. Did you at any point fear that by doing that, you might in a way be patronising them or saying to them that they weren't capable of reading a normal size book with regular text? Was that ever something that played on your mind? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I mean, it's something that will continue to maybe be 
to be an element of the book being viewed like that. But for me, whilst that decision-making part of the element was, you know, the fact that a lot of young kids and young men are on Snapchat, WhatsApp, Instagram, the way they communicate is different. So there was that element of it. That wasn't the primary reason. The primary reason for me was I read a lot of books and, you know, we can all go pick up books on written by, you know, so-and-so academics, so-and-so psychologists, and there'll be 200 pages, 300 pages. And plenty of people can read that, young people, old people. What I realized was, um, I guess it comes from my kind of storytelling world and the literature background. You know, we always say in writing, don't tell, you know, show, like, so uh, rather don't show, don't tell. And that was kind of what I was thinking. Well, I could sit here and write 200 words of prose, you know, and cite academic studies and, and this and that. But that would just be telling. And I realized that the best way to do it is literally to show it. And the only way to show it is with the actual messages. Cause I kind of realized when I was going back through our messages, trying to understand what happened to my friendship with Damien, I started to think, well, how many other people have got friendships like this? How many other people have had these moments of friends and family where they can't connect, where they've got these kind of half messages through technology, through apps. If I just lay it out on a book, it will resonate with people. I have found that to be really true as well. Like some feedback and reviews and messages I've got from people, one in France and one in Switzerland, where they were saying that that's exactly how their friendships played out, that they thought they were friends with the person, but they didn't really know them. And that when they look at their messages, they can kind of see that. So that's what the, the decision-making was behind that. It kind of like, you know, how a geologist looks at the erosion in time in a bedrock, you can see the time through the ages. It's kind of like that. You open it and you can see a friendship evolving through the ages and instead of being told what it is, you can actually literally be shown verbatim the actual friendship. So that was the main reason for it. Let's chart the journey of that relationship now, because the conversations between you and Damien start out quite straightforward, as you say, like most male friendships seem to do. However, it was in the run up to your stag do on November 2016, where Damien exhibited perhaps the first red flags of his mental health state and went AWOL over text message. Can you tell me about your relationship here and then what transpired? Well, me and my wife, we'd left Norwich. That's where we were living. We were actually sharing a house with Damien, which everyone said definitely don't do, you know, <laughs> a couple and a best friend living together, but we had an amazing time. But when we left Norwich, in my mind, I was kind of cognizant of the fact that, well, Damien was now living in Norwich, which he didn't know that many people in. That lovely kind of bosom, so to call it, that we had the three of us in our house hanging out was gone. So in my head, I was like, you know, just, just in a curious way, I was kind of wondering how my friend was going to be, you know, losing his two closest friends. They're going, moving to Brighton. He's in Norwich alone, doesn't know that many people. So that's kind of why I was mindful already when we'd left Norwich. But then as time developed, we would, like I say, we'd always talk, we'd pretty much talk to each other every day, at least for an hour on the phone, if not every two days. And we'd certainly text each other. And over a period of a few months, that just kind of diluted to the point where there was almost no communication from him. For anyone else, that maybe wouldn't be a red flag. But for me, when you literally talk to someone every day, it, it was a red flag. And that's when I kind of tried to start reaching out. And that's really where the AWOL came from in that sense of he was acting in a way in our friendship that had never been before. We'd always be in contact. However mundane, there was always contact and now there was nothing. So that was the big red flag for me. Things came to a head after Damien's lack of communication and you sent him the first of what would come to be a set of very honest and emotional text messages over the next couple of years to Damien on December 2016, which I believe it started on. How hard was that to write initially and reflecting on it? Do you think you were perhaps too harsh in certain aspects or did Damien need to hear how his behaviour had affected you fully? I have to be totally honest. The book is totally honest in that I put in Again, it's a decision why I chose not to write like a, a lengthy piece of prose. 
nonfiction prose, I chose to actually show our verbatim messages because when I was looking back through the messages, trying to understand what had happened, I realized how bad some of my own behavior was, even when it was well-meaning. And that's what I find really interesting psychologically in that sometimes we come with really good intentions, but the actions we do don't align with those intentions. And my first message to him in 2016, it was just genuine, but so much of it was just kind of, you know, applying even more stigma or even more judgment. That's why I put those messages in there because it can show people, you know, you don't have to be perfect to try and engage with someone emotionally. Like, you know, you can be messy, but as long as you're trying. And that was my first kind of muddy attempt to try and just get through to him a little bit. And I think I remember saying to him, it was very much just like, what's happening? You know, you can't just cut your friends out like this. We're still here. We're still worried about you. You haven't spoken to us in months. So it, there was an element of me trying to shock him into action a little bit because later on in the book, I talk about it. Like we never, ever had an altercation in like 10 or 15 years, like never. And like, I mean, even the most mundane sense, like who finished the ketchup or something like that, like nothing. We were always on a coasting level, like really happy, really jokey, really jovial. We never had even the slightest altercation. So to send that message was already kind of a big deal for me, even though to other people it would just be like, oh, other people have arguments all the time and they're fine with it. That was, yeah, I could have probably done better with the message, but I felt like he needed a bit of a shock to realize because we'd never had an argument before then. Damien went AWOL again on text message in March 2017. Given his previous behaviour, on this occasion, were you able to recognise those red flags, the distant behaviour, the passing off of big life events like losing his job and putting them quite casually into conversation as something very nonchalant? Or did it still feel like an anomaly to him? Yeah, that is very much Damien. And um, I noticed that with other male friends of mine in that big things can just be passed off casually because you don't want to go into them because if you if you start talking about them going in depth to them analyzing them that brings up emotions emotions are scary and muddy so if you just put gloss over them you don't have to open that kind of pandora's box again that's an element where i'm ashamed with how i acted at the time because the liam i am now in 2021 is so different from that one four or five years ago in terms of emotional intelligence like back then i very much knew that damien was frankly lying you know kind of not really telling the truth and instead of trying to engage him trying to say look I, I know you're hiding something instead of trying to say whoa whoa whoa, that was a big thing you've just glossed over do you want to talk about it how are you feeling didn't really do any of that because it scared me frankly to do that because like many of my male friendships up to that point I'd never really engaged with men like that you know like we talked about philosophy or football or music or art we didn't talk about, oh, this just happened to me and it's making me nervous or scared or I'm crying because of it. We just didn't talk about that. That was too muddy. So I was aware. I saw it as a red flag, but it's like I saw the red flag hoisted up and I just hoisted a white flag up, you know, and it was just like it's not the best way to deal with it. But that's how I dealt with it then. So you see in the book, there's kind of a little attempt to talk and then it, it always comes back to a, oh, I'm sorry, man, I'm, I'm just busy or I'm just working, I'm tired. And that's something a lot of people use, both men and women, but men men more so. You know, you can just say, oh, I'm overworked, I'm under stress. And people go, okay, well, you're stressed, so let me not put more stress on you by trying to ask how you are. But all that is, is it's just kind of entrenching denial. That entrenched denial would obviously lead to more as the book progressed. It was at this point, worrying about Damon began to affect your own mental health too. And you state in such a heartbreaking way that at that point, Damien felt more like a stranger than a friend. After weeks of dodging it, Damien finally admitted to you that he was homeless, which 
flawed you for many reasons, as I can imagine. And I want to read out a key quote from you here. You said, he would rather be homeless than ask me for a place to crash. How did you feel in that moment about him and your own state of helplessness to support him, no matter how hard you tried? Yeah, I, that's that quote sums it all up because um, you say, how, you know, how do you help someone, especially when they don't want to be helped? It makes me think of a, a quote, I say a quote, something my wife said to me years ago when we'd only been together about six months to a year. My wife is far more emotionally wise than I am. And she turned to me and um, it's early on in our relationship. And she said, you can't give someone else self-esteem. And I was only 21 at the time. And it was kind of like a, an eye-opening statement. And I still remember it now because no matter how much you help someone, at the end of the day, when it comes to self-esteem, that's something someone gives to themselves. The external world will facilitate that. It will affect that, of course. But ultimately, that self-esteem, how you see yourself, how you appreciate yourself, how you value yourself, comes from yourself. So even though I was trying to help Damien, there was only so much I could do if he wasn't wanting to help himself. And when we had that phone call, when we hadn't, I think we hadn't spoken for two months or so. And when we had that phone call and he, and he just told me he'd been homeless for several weeks. Still now, it's like, it feels like a parallel reality. It feels like someone else's story, not the story of my best friend, Damien. It's like, no, that couldn't happen to my best friend, Damien, but it did. And as that line you quoted picks out, it's like, he didn't even think to call to ask for help and I um I engaged him with that I actually said to him why didn't you call me and the answer was incredible in that Damien just said he said to me I only had I budgeted two pound a day for food I didn't have money to call you and again that's a very it's kind of a masculine thing of like you're dealing with concrete ideas like I have this much money this is what I'm doing it's like a logical approach but the truth was that's just a poorly constructed excuse because we all know that you can call someone for free. You can use reverse. You can ask someone to use their phone. There's always a way to, to contact someone. The truth was he didn't want to ask for help because that would open that Pandora's box that he really didn't want to touch. That, that was a big, a big moment for me realizing even when as a man that you can fall that low into a place of help and still not ask for help. That's how entrenched some of those masculine ideas of, well, if I ask for help, I'm admitting weakness. <laughs> you know, if I ask for help, I'm not manning up. I'm not toughening up. So even at that point, when asking for help is absolutely what you should do, you still don't. In that respect, that was really eye opening to me because I myself do things like that. And a lot of my other male friends do in that you sometimes you just go so far to the point where you should have asked for help several steps ago, but you just haven't. And obviously that situation with Damien is like an extreme example of it. Damien got into some incredibly dangerous situations whilst he was homeless. And one just tear-jerking moment was when he described having a shower for the first time in weeks. He managed to miraculously land a job at one of Rick Stein's restaurants. But then you spent the next three months, like you said, not talking to each other. After this, you decided to write your most heartfelt, honest and at times very brutal letter to Damon explaining how you felt and how you saw your friendship deteriorating over the past year. If you could, just tell me a bit about what you wrote in that letter and then the events that transpired afterwards. That letter, I, I still hate to read it, even though it came from a good place. I think I say in the book, it was like a Jackson Pollock of emotions. I just literally spaffed all this kind of emotion onto Microsoft Word. It had good intentions, but wow, they, did they come out badly? <laughs> and um, again, that's why I put it in there so that people can see it's something I was learning through the book. It's just how our emotional intelligence was so poor. I like to consider myself a fairly bright guy and Damien is certainly a clever guy. And we'd have all these intellectual discussions about 
ecology or technology, philosophy, politics, whatever, but emotional intelligence, there was nothing there. Like it was, it was actually baffling how there was no emotional intelligence whatsoever. As soon as it came to talking about emotions, just massive walls erected. And then when I tried to lower the wall, that letter came out and in, in the letter, it was very much, I'd come to a point in my friendship with Damien where I realized this isn't just the case of our oh, friends being a bit distant. Like this is something more severe. I was kind of torn between these two worlds and I put it in the letter, which was on the one hand, I genuinely was thinking, is he clinically depressed? And have I just completely missed that? Because depression can wear a smiling face sometimes. And had I just completely missed that, I knew that he was an introvert. I'd known that since we were 15 years old when we first met. And I knew he was a little socially awkward. You know, I knew like he didn't like to go to that many parties or if he did go to a party, he was the kind of person who would stand in a corner and I usually stand there with him but I don't think I realized how you know there's a difference between saying someone is socially awkward and someone has severe acute anxiety disorder I didn't even know what severe acute anxiety disorders were at that point when I was writing that letter but I was starting to I was starting to read into these things but then the other element which I put in the letter to him was there was a part of me that just feared is he just a misanthrope is he just a hermit and I think that was more of a, a hurt part of me. I was kind of almost like I was, I didn't want it to be clinical depression because then, oh God, we've got to deal with that. So there was a part of me in a perverse way that was hoping, oh, I, I almost hope he's just a hermit and he's just really cold and callous because then at least I can just say, oh, well, screw you. There goes my friendship. I don't have to deal with emotions. Whereas if he was clinically depressed and needed help, well, then that would involve emotional intelligence. And I didn't really know that. So I guess you could say that letter was, the first real opening of that Pandora's box in terms of us as men trying to engage on an emotionally intelligent level. Can you tell me about when you went to visit him in Brighton and the story behind that? Yeah, that was, oh God, that was horrible. Like still now, that is one of those memories that's just not a nice memory. <laughs> After that letter, you know, it was such a frank letter that I sent to him. I was absolutely expecting a response. And then as the days turned to weeks, turned to months, and I didn't get a response. I think three months or whatever elapsed. I realized, wow, I, I, I've really, I've stepped on a landmine here because maybe that letter has just, you know, made him feel even more judged, has made his stigma feel even more acute. Like maybe I've just done such a bad thing from a well-intentioned place. So I was so concerned at this point that I, there was no contact between us that I'd started talking which I'd never done, started talking uh, through emails with his mom because his mom had reached out to me saying, I'm worried about my own son. And at that point, she was kind of telling me, you know, like he's sleeping 14 hours a day. He then gets up. He doesn't do anything. He's quit his job with Rick Stein. And that's when, you know, when you don't know what's going on in someone's life, you don't know what you don't know. Right. But now I was starting to learn things from his mom that were making me so worried. It was one email in particular where she said, I don't know my own son anymore. And that was just like, well, at that point I got just so, so sick with worry. I couldn't sleep anymore because I was thinking, well, if his own mum is saying that, you know, so at that point I spoke with Charlotte and we just decided, look, let's not give him the choice. Let's just go and see him. I mean, if you want a definition, I guess you could say it was an intervention, but I wouldn't have called it that. But I guess in some element it was an intervention. So we got on the train, headed to see him. And um, it was just the weirdest thing, because this is my closest friend on the planet, you know, like with Thick as Thieves. I got upstairs, I knock on his bedroom door, and, and when he opened the door, it was just someone I, 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 I didn't recognise. 
like yes it was it was the person i knew but it wasn't like he had a, a long shaggy beard you know when you really know someone when they're your best friends or your parents you know them in subtle intimate ways that you can only know when you really know someone so like very small movements of the eyes or micro expressions of the mouth can tell you a lot about someone you really know and when you open the door just one glance at him i just knew oh my god you're not in a good place his eyes were kind of set back into his face he he looked just not himself at all but then what happened next was what really let me know okay things have really hit the fan because he just pushed past me like my best friend he just come first of all he said what are you doing here and I kind of laughed I was like what am I doing here I'm here to see you you know what do you mean what am I doing here but he just pushed past me he raced down the stairs and he kept saying over and over again I can't I can't I can't I can't and he raced out the house and that's when that again it, it's in the book these kind of things I was very much thinking about in terms of masculinity and men dealing with emotions, I instantly felt anger, like really seething, red hot anger. And I remember the thought in my head, and I think I, I put it in the book, I, I was swearing away in my head and I was like, well, screw you. You know, if you're going to do that, why should I be here for you? Like, and what I realized when I stepped back from it and analyzed those thoughts a few weeks later was that was those kind of learned socialization of a man, which is, well, I've been rejected. So how should I respond? Should I respond with more empathy, with more patience? No, screw that. I'll be a typical man and I'll respond with anger. I'll wall up. I've been hurt, so I don't want to be hurt anymore. Therefore, I won't put myself out there. But while I was thinking that, standing on the stairs, Charlotte instantly is putting on her shoes and goes to me, come on, and runs out the house. And it was that thing of she was always more emotion intelligent than me. And she responded to that hurt with even more empathy. So I realized I had to do the same. So I went after her. We chased him down the street. It was pouring with rain. Sounds like a really bad kind of English sitcom, like these three English people running down the road in the rain. We managed to kind of stop him at a bus stop and um, Charlotte got to him first. And as I came up the street, I look back at it now, I'm just like, what an idiot. Why did I do that? But I remember shouting at him like punch me come on hit me like <laughs> and it's like why was I behaving like that I'm not someone who likes to fight I don't like confrontation but again I feel like it was that kind of learned socialization like we see it you know if you watch an action film two men always if they have an argument they solve it by beating the crap out of each other and then having a pint of beer afterwards that's kind of the stimulus you see from all the media from everything you learn as a man it's just men have an argument have a fight it's all good so I was almost wanting him to kind of punch emotion into me it was the weirdest kind of I don't know what was going on in my brain at the time and I was telling him come on hit me well are you angry are you mad at me and again it was that sense of not enough emotional intelligence I was asking him hit me I was making it about me you know hit me do you hate me what have I done how I felt wasn't even there you know if anything it was narcissistic I should be there for him I should have been asking him how he was feeling how he was doing but I was kind of unable to do that because I was in my shoes where I'd lost a close friend, hadn't spoken to them for months, had turned up at their house, they just ran out the house, couldn't speak to me. So I was feeling so hurt. And then we just let him go. We, he went down the road and Charlotte said we should go after him. And I said, no, leave him to it because there was an element of hurt, you know, but it was also, I was kind of scared. Well, where was this going to go? If we start chasing him across traffic, one of us is going to get hit by a car. We let it go thinking we'll deal with it later. We went back to his mum's house waiting for him and the hours just ticked by, ticked by, ticked by. I think it got to about 10 o'clock at night and he still hadn't come back home. And I'd gone out into the street. I'd gone to local parks where I knew we always hung out as kids, you know, where we'd go play football, where we used to go mountain biking. I went to all these places thinking he's got to be there. He's got to be there. 
I didn't find him. I mean, I found a lot of dodgy people in the bushes, but I didn't find him. And then came back and I just realized, I sent him a text saying, you're not going to come home if we're here, are you? So I don't want you to stay out, you know, in the middle of London, in the middle of the night. God knows what's going to happen to you. So we, we had a good cry with his mum and we left, went back to our place. And um, that was kind of where it was left at that point. There was no real resolve. There was no real successful intervention, as it were. It, it just got even muddier and even more painful after that point. After all of that drama, Damien, sort of out of the blue, I think, sent you an email which contained his truth, the truth, and left no stone unturned in what was going on in his life. You then sent an email back to him, which at that point, I think felt like a turning point in your friendship. Was it? Yeah, I definitely think that was a turning point. I remember at the time talking to Charlotte about it and, and, and being like, we've never communicated like this. Like, absolute best friends. You know, I always called Damien my brother. And even though we were brothers, we'd never communicated like this. And what I mean is we'd never communicated our feelings, our fears, our insecurities, our neuroses. We'd never talked about these things. And now we were. And it was... You know, you could say, oh, you know, I know a lot of guys go, oh, that's an effort. Oh, that's too much to deal with. But actually, it was really, even though it was painful, it was really heartwarming. And it was really, um, there was a great value I was taking in it because we were talking about things we'd never spoken about. And it was the first time where Damien actually admitted to me. He'd never said it in 15, 16, 17 years of knowing him. He actually said in the email, I know I have a social anxiety personality disorder. He said that. And I'm not a massive fan of labels purely because I grew up with my mom and seeing what 15 years of drugs and psychiatry did to her and, and what the labels kind of did to her, how labels can be delimiting. However, that's not true for everyone. Sometimes a label can really help someone. It can allow them to grasp something. And it felt like a big turning point, him admitting that, me hearing that. Some of the kind of anecdotes and stories, you know, like as a writer, I love stories. I always feel like stories are how we understand things, hence why I, I put this into this book. But there was a story in his letter that he told me where the first time he'd met Charlotte, I was so excited. I was bringing my girlfriend, I'd only known her about a year at that point, to meet my best friend. And, you know, I told Charlotte all about Damien. He's my best friend. He's my brother. Can't wait till you see him. And Damien, at that time, we'd met at the train station. This was years ago. And then we'd gone into London and had a great day. I mean, we'd gone to the Natural History Museum. We'd gone to the Science Museum. We just had a great day. However, in this letter, he was telling me that he'd got to the train station before Charlotte and me, was so nervous because of his social anxiety disorder, he was so socially anxious about meeting Charlotte, a new person, someone who means so much to me, that he ran to PWP, which was a tennis store that we both used to work in at that time when Wimbledon was on. He ran to PWP, ran into the toilet and just threw his guts up in the toilet. And what I find astounding is that, one, I didn't know that. Charlotte didn't know that. You know, he came out the toilet walked up to us and was like, hey, nice to meet you. And then we all went off and lived our day. And it was like, we had no idea that five minutes prior to that, he was in a cold sweat, shivering, throwing up in a toilet. And not because of some huge traumatic event, purely from the event of meeting a new person, something that mundane. My mind was blown at that point. I really realized how you can be best friends with someone, but they can't, they don't show you their worst demons, so to speak. That was a real inflection point to me. So those letters were a really big turning point in us as men in terms of just being able to talk about emotional issues and trauma and, th and things we were dealing with, which he'd never had done to that point. After this moment, Damien went AWOL for a further final time. Stigma is a very nuanced and complex thing at times, Liam, as you well know. How did you balance the desire and need for you to be there and support Damien 
and then also hold him accountable for you know persistent absent behavior broken promises letting you down how much agency do you place with Damien and how much do you see it as a product of his mental health because the answer isn't always a simple one is it yeah and that's for me like a seminal question because um, I think we'll, we'll discuss it later but I'm currently studying to be a psychosexual therapist and counselor kind of born out of this book and what I've really been getting interested in that for me is a driving question because you know there's different approaches to to counseling or talking therapies and helping people and I'm more of someone who likes to be for want of a better word it's not the right word but combative that's kind of how because I grew up with my mum and my mum would be the first person to tell you I would always challenge her as a kid you know you can do more mum you know you you can do more to to live with your depression you can do more to be I was quite challenging as a child but that came from you know a child just wanting their mum to be stronger for them basically but as I've grown up as an adult as you talk about that agency and responsibility I very much believe that they both work in tandem. You can have empathy and understanding for someone for what they're dealing with and understanding their definitions and limitations, but at the same time, helping them to have a sense of ownership for their actions and decisions, not blame or not judgment, just ownership. I was trying to walk that line at that time with Damien. I was doing it with some success and then other times I wasn't at all. Like the letter he sent back to me, it came because after that kind of really important moment where he ran down the street and we left him and we went back to Brighton, I realised that I, I, I again looked through my own old messages and I realised there were things that I didn't like that I'd said. You know, I didn't like that I did. Again, even if the intentions were good, the actions weren't. I made a conscious decision, I mentioned in the book, that I was going to try and be a more empathetic, more caring, more emotionally sensitive man. And that's why over a period of a few months, I would just send every day, I would make sure I sent one a day, I would send a lovely message to him. You know, just, I, it would be something just like, hey mate, I hope you're okay. I love you with all my heart. You're my family forever. I hope to speak soon. Other days it would just be like, how are you doing today? If you want to talk, I'm here. And that continued. And then occasionally I would snap and revert back into that kind of hurt thing. And I'd be like, I think one of the messages was 10 years of friendship. What's happening? Question mark, question mark, question mark. And it's like, well, that's a horrible message to send someone. Because all that's doing is making them feel judged and making them feel stigma again. I was trying, as we would say, in immediate rest, in the moment, I was trying to understand how to be more emotionally intelligent with some success and not so much success. And then that's kind of how that letter came around and we started to grow from, I think Damien later said to me, he called it, it was like incessant love. Like I was just kind of almost like stalking him with love, like just constantly making sure that if his self-esteem was low which it obviously was that he knew that others loved him you know because that can be a real thing like if your self-esteem has hit a rock bottom not only do you not give a crap about yourself but you don't think anyone else does so if you as a starting point can know that other people care about you that other people really love and cherish you and value you then maybe you'll start to feel that way as well and I think that's where I was trying to come from the climax of the book rests on one conversation you have with Damien. And I'll let you tell this story, Liam, because I don't think I can do it justice as an interviewer. Yeah, the, <laughs> the conversation, it was, um, again, you know, like as we've gone through this podcast, we always had these ups and downs, ups and downs, I mean, Damien, where it's like we were trying to emotionally connect, but then, of course, we'd fall back on those pitfalls of manhood where we just close up again. So every time it looked like we were opening up, it would close down again. And then finally... I think it was just after the marathon, I think it was. And I'd run run the Brighton Marathon. And I was absolutely dog tired. And we'd started to talk more and more. And then at this point, the kind of back and forth reaching out, it was getting to a place for me where I was like, well, this is great. We've got to this point. But how do we move things on? How do we really reconnect? How does Damien really 
because he was still living in that kind of social bubble, that socially anxious bubble where he wasn't engaging in the world. And I was very much like, how can I help him just to open that door, so to speak? And I was walking down the hill and I think I rang maybe like, you know, the straw that breaks the camel's back. I just decided, right, I'm just going to ring you until you answer the phone. <laughs> so I just rang and rang and rang. And 37 missed calls later, <laughs> there was an answer, which I really wasn't expecting. And I remember telling myself a few more calls, and I'm going to give up because this is borderline harassment. You know, he could call the police on me at this stage. And yeah, he answered the call. And it was just so nice because I, I hadn't actually heard his voice, someone who I used to speak to every day on the phone. First time I heard his voice in God knows how long. And what struck me was he was instantly falling over himself to apologize. And that kind of broke my heart a little bit because what I was trying to show in the letters and the messages with him is, you know, it's that question you ask about agency. You shouldn't have to apologize for your mental health ever. You can take ownership of decisions and actions you've made that may have affected other people, but you should never apologize for your mental health. So I was trying to tell him, don't worry about apologizing. All I care is that we're on the phone talking now. The conversation, of course, in the back of my head, I was just terrified because I'd been secretly writing this book about us as I kind of been living through this kind of emotional understanding of these terrible tools that we had as men. And I realized, oh my God, not only have we not spoken in God knows how many months, feels like almost a year now, but I now have to say, oh, by the way, I've been writing this book about the most intimate, vulnerable aspects of your life and mine. And do you want to share it with everyone? So I was waiting, waiting to bring up this moment thinking, I remember I told myself, if he's not comfortable with this, I will just delete it. At the end of the day, the story is more his than mine. Yes, it's about our relationship and it's about how men interact with each other and other people, but it was more his story than mine. So I was fully, fully ready. If he was like, what the hell, how dare you? I would have went totally, don't worry, I'm deleting it right now. What struck me is that someone who is so socially, is so socially anxious, when I told him what I was doing, you know, sharing our, the most vulnerable verbatim emails, letters and messages with each other, and without missing a beat, he just thought, oh, that's a great idea. And it kind of speaks to, to his resilience as a human being. Like, yes, you know, I'm speaking in his shoes now. Yes, I'm socially anxious, but yes, bear that on the page for other people to read. I'm okay with that. I'll fraternally be in debt to him for being able to, to open up like that because um, already I'm seeing the benefits of people who have read the story now and are being touched because how else can you ask people to be vulnerable if you're not vulnerable? That's what he agreed to in that conversation. And um, I still now pinch myself at how quick he was just to go, oh yeah, that's a great book. Tell me about it. He's <laughs> like, tell me about it. You've lived it, you know? So it was, um, it was quite a bizarre conversation, but very moving as well. I almost wanted to cry in that conversation as he was telling me that. And then at the same time, it speaks again to our, our learned kind of masculine socialization in that I was like, oh, I don't, I don't want to hear. I don't want to show him I'm crying. So I balled that up and then had a little cry later on. The final chapter of the book, Liam, is written by Damien himself. And like you said, he was the one who approved the concept of the book as well as grant permission for all of his private text messages to be shared with the world. I hope you removed the uh, not safe for work ones. What did Damien say to you after he read the book himself? And what is your friendship like now? Yeah, the final piece always had to be him. When I was getting towards the end of the book, because it's not like, you know, it's not like when you write a piece of fiction in, in that, you know, sometimes as a writer, you're like, oh, how do I end this? Where is it ending? You've got multiple different ideas planned out. I was writing a book that was ha happening concurrently to the actual real life events that we were living. So I was very much aware that the book had a natural kind of end point when our friendship was coming back together. But uh, it always struck me like this is more his story. So how dare I try and close it? He had to be the one who closed it. and. 
he was very anxious at first because he's a musician, he's not a writer. So he was like, I can't write. And I said to him, no, you definitely can write. I know you can, you're an intelligent, articulate guy. I think what he wrote at the end is better than anything I wrote for the previous hundred odd pages. I, I think it's far better than anything I wrote. It's very honest, it's very humbling. I feel like now our, our friendship still, still has its little kinks to iron out, I feel like, but we're, we're certainly much closer than we've ever been because of it. I mean, we talk a lot more about our emotions now we talk you know I'm, I'm always checking in with him just checking in seeing how he's doing he checks in with me and I think sometimes you know maybe you don't want to talk about that but other times you really do our friendship has evolved into a place now where we're now well, it's lockdown but if we could we'd still meet up to play FIFA and whatnot but whilst we still have those kind of tropes of a, a normal masculine friendship where you're just hanging out you know kicking back chilling we also have this other element of our friendship where we are engaging more on an emotional level. I can't thank him enough for writing the end to that book because I didn't realise that he would basically directly call me and Charlotte out, our friendship, and he would say that it was our friendship, our kind of incessant loving that reminded him of his self-worth. That was just very touching to see that despite, frankly, horrible things I might have said along the way. God knows how many times I just sprayed a Jackson Pollock at him. Ultimately, the good intentions did win out. Yeah, that's quite wonderful to see him put that in at the end of, end of the book. Writing this book, Liam, what has it taught you about yourself, do you think? I mean, every piece of writing I learned more about myself, but none more so than, than with this one. I just understood that I've always considered myself a caring person, an empathetic person. If someone else is crying, even if it's a stranger in the street, it always deeply moves me and I always feel compelled to go up to them and just, are you okay? However, I realised that my emotional intelligence, I keep coming back to this, it just really was not developed, so underdeveloped. I think I talk about it in the book, like my dad raised me as, as I feel like it can happen with a lot of men, not to generalise, but it can happen with a lot of men in our society where men deal in ideas, not feelings. So they're, they're far more comfortable talking about their work, talking about their hobbies, talking about their passions. But in terms of talking about what's going on in the inside, that seems a lot harder to do. And what I learned about myself was that how I'd been socialized, how I'd been shaped by the society around me and being self-aware of that, being self-aware of the tropes that I'd taken on that, well, I don't have to stay like that. You know, I, I, it, it's hard, but I can challenge myself. I, I can try and be more, more empathetic, more caring. I can be a better listener. I can be willing to ask those questions that should be asked. The main one was to, how to be a better friend because I think the definition of what we have in the 21st century of what it is to be a, a good friend maybe isn't objectively correct. I think a really good friend, you should, if you see a friend going down a path that's worrying, you should be there to say to them, whoa, this is what I see. Are you OK? A really good friend should be able to do the things that are frankly scary, you know, in a friendship instead of just kind of coasting. I think in the beginning of the book, I talk about it, it's like being in a boat on the surface. Sometimes you do want to dive in and access what's below in the kind of deep dark water i feel like now especially with all my other male friends who have, who have read the book our friendship a lot of them now open up to me which is really nice you know like um, a lot of them talk about things that they're going through people that i never would have expected because they just literally never shared that with me that's definitely what i've taken away i've, I've kind of i'm still working on that and that's why i'm going into this kind of new profession alongside my writing in that i just realized how fascinated i am in how we as young men are shaped by the society we live in, shaped by our, the fathers that raise us, and how we as the next generation can basically improve upon the definition of manhood and masculinity to make it a more sensitive, inclusive one. Before we wrap up the journey, there's a couple of things I wanted to touch on with you, Liam. The first one is 
like you just mentioned, you're really proud of your new career as a trainee psychosexual therapist. Why was it something you wanted to pursue and what issues did you want to explore in it? I understand young men's relationship with sex and mental health was key for you. Yeah, I mean, I've always been a very sexual person, to be frank. I've always been very interested in sex and sexology and the whole sexual sphere, what it is to be a human. And um, society still has a lot of taboo about that. But, you know, we are becoming better with it. But what I'm fascinated by is, for example, take, you know, it's it's in the news at the moment, Sarah Everard and, and her murder. I think everyone's been talking about that study that went around that 97% of women being assaulted, sexually abused in some respect by men. And it's a shocking fact. And what I find where that takes me in terms of my interest, you know, as a trainee therapist and the book I've written and my kind of interest in masculinity is you can see a fact like that. And instantly we use buzzwords like toxic masculinity and those words make sense. But what I'm concerned about is men are obviously doing that to women. That's terrible. But then what I'm more concerned about is why. And for me, it's kind of reconciling what I would say is the caveman and the caring man or the sensitive man and the stoic man. Like basically we have 5000 years of human socialization on men where men have gone from cavemen who took what they want. They raped, they pillaged, they burnt. The last 300 years have been an entire generation of men, our fathers, their fathers and their fathers who just went to war, literally war, war, war in the office, in the workplace. They took what they want. And this does feed into the kind of the neural pathways in our brain and how we're shaped and how we think. But it doesn't mean it's defined like that. We can be self-aware of that and change that. And that's what I'm interested in, in how that overlaps with sex, because you know, you can have totally different relationships in sex and you can have personal relationships with your friends. The person in the bedroom is a completely different person that you don't get to see. But the reason I mentioned caveman and caring man is our sexual lives, we are tapping into something that is primordial when we have sex. You know, that is a very primordial thing. It's the reason that we do it in private. It's something that is the animals, the bees and the birds do. And I'm interested to know if we can look at our sexual relationships with our partners, to what extent shaping and creating better sexual fulfilling lives creates better people, because then you can be more in balance. If we can have men who are having more sexually open, fulfilling, consensual relationships with women, and not just men to women, you know, of all genders, of all sexual orientations, but if we can have these relationships where they are more, basically more understanding, more nuance, more communication, more dialogue, more consent, more understanding. For me, that one, one will inform the other. Better sexual lives will inform better personal lives. Better sexual lives will inform better interpersonal relationships. That's just how I view things. I, I think they're very closely attached. That society has put it as a taboo for a long period of time, but actually it is one of our defining characteristics as, as human beings. You know, we've evolved so fast. We've now, you know, Elon Musk might be sending a space rocket to Mars, but the irony is the same engineers that designed those space rockets have pretty much the exact same brain that Homo sapien had several thousand years, uh, several thousand decades ago. Our brain literally hasn't evolved. So we're, we're basically apes who want to have sex, but we're also dealing in all these complex interpersonal intellectual activities as a society. And how do we understand those two? You can't, we can't just separate them. We have to understand that we need to feed the caveman side of us while also fearing the caring side of us. That's what I want to do as I go from training to actually being accredited in later years and pursuing this as a profession, understanding with young men how we can better define that because we do live in this age of immense pornography. We live in this age of Tinder. We live in a, where technology is impacting how we interact sexually. And then 
think about how that impacts on our interpersonal relationships. You know, as a young man, if you're just constantly watching women being used as sexual objects online in pornography, and if you are acting through Tinder, where basically human beings are diluted to a swipe left or swipe right. I mean, it's unbelievably callous, but I get it, people use that. But what are those doing to our psychology? Because those things that we do in that part of our lives, in the kind of the social ape part of us, when we swipe left or right, how is that informing the caveman part of us, the sexual brain, the primordial part of our brain, that when we go to have sex in the bedroom in private with someone, to what extent are our proclivities or our actions or our consensual interaction informed by the stuff we've been doing in the social side of us and that's where i want to explore going forward just on that that was going to be my next question what is your perspective when it comes to pornography now it's not something i've people be surprised to know but it's not something i access rarely if at all because of trauma but i think what during my research on it there's a lot of stuff about rape fantasy which i'm kind of learning about which is something really horrific but i am of the opinion that similar to how I don't think that video games cause violence, I don't tend to believe, and someone can prove me wrong on this, I don't tend to believe that porn causes violence, but I do believe it can vastly warp men and women's conception of sex or their realities of sex. Is that something you'd share a perspective on? And what is your kind of opinion on it? I would say, like growing up, I have to be honest, I watched quite a bit of porn growing up at a young age as well, because I remember walking to school and like a 12 year old boy literally showing me a horrifically graphic video on his phone. And it's like straight there, Pandora's box has been opened for you. And this is what we're living in the modern world with technology that's so diffuse. Parents just don't know what their kids are accessing, frankly. Yeah. When you say to what extent is porn causing violence? For me, that has, like you say, it's the inverse in that. This is why I come back to the whole caveman, caring man, that primordial brain in that porn is indicative of the society we live in, right? So it's not that it exists in some vacuum and it's informing society. Yes, it's having an effect, but the porn that we see, like you say, with rape fantasies and these kind of things, that speaks to the human being. So on the surface, I would say I have no problem with a rape fantasy as long as it's consensual, it's discussed. It's, you know, you can have a perfectly happy functioning couple who have been together for a long time and they may role play that kind of thing, but it's how you do it. And this is where, again, I come back my interest in the masculine side, which is the emotional intelligence. Men don't tend to talk through these things. So in porn, if you just see a guy doing what he wants, taking what he wants, you may act in a similar way. And this is why we need a more nuanced conversation to go along with porn, because at the end of the day, it's always going to be there. Porn isn't going anywhere. Porn at the moment accounts for the most traffic on the Internet. And this is what I mean about the, the primordial brain. That says a lot about us as humans. Facebook can have two billion users. You know, Google can have any whatever amount of billion hits a day. At the end of the day, porn has the most traffic on the Internet. And that says everything you need to know about human beings. Human beings are interested with sex, obsessed with it, whatever we want to call it, but they are interested with it. And we need to understand how, yes, porn has those elements that I can remember as a young boy thinking, I probably shouldn't have seen that. And I'm even aware now that some of my interests or proclivities do actually come from that. However, for me, it's how you might have been exposed to something in pornography that has opened up an interest for you, but how do you explore the interest? And this is where we need to, it's all about having discussions and education, which is why I think schools and as institutions can do so much more. Because again, it's like that 10 foot barge pole. You know how men don't want to open up emotionally and talk about it. Institutions are the same. It's like, what 
we can't teach porn to children. It's like, well, you absolutely should because they're looking at it, frankly. So that's where society can do a larger aspect. And again, that's how you connect those two elements, the kind of sexual side and the social side, you know, the, the part of the person you see out in society who's going and buying their groceries and then the person who's maybe using those groceries in the bedroom later that evening. It's like how you connect those two aspects. And we can only do that if we have a more nuanced conversation society. And I think institutions like schools and government can do so much more because frankly, the sex ed classes are just a joke. <laughs> like the kids are seeing so much more just in a smartphone in their hand than being told in a class. If we don't deal with that with them as a society, we're just collectively acting in denial. As a final question, mate, there was one thing you wanted to talk about, which was the struggles of being an artist in today's society. When we say artist, we mean writer, not just a musician, so to speak. Can you unpack that for me and how it's impacted your mental health? I still live with that every day. And um, I think I will for a considerable time. It's something like, again, it's kind of in the shadow of my dad, because my dad was a somewhat successful journalist, but he always wanted to be a novelist and he never really made it. There's a part of me that I've set out on that same path. I want to be a novelist. I, I have this large, I think I mentioned it once or twice because Stanion was reading my book. He was always my proofreader. So it's mentioned a few times in messages. But um, my large series, Being is a Chaos, it's like a sprawling fantasy series. And I very much want to get that out there, but I take rejection very hard. I've had about 20 of rejections in the last year or two. I just take that rejection very hard because artists tend to have their sense of self-worth tied to their art. And it's literally in the last year or two that I'm starting to understand that that's such an unhealthy way to view things. Because at the end of the day... <laughs> Shakespeare didn't write Hamlet so that kids at GCSE level 400 years later would be talking about him. Do you know what I mean? It's that thing of the art shouldn't be about your legacy. You can enjoy it as a creative activity. And that's the main fundamental thing I would take away with art. And I, I still have to learn that, which is being creative for me is a, it's one of the most important things in life. I think when you're creative, it, it grows your mind. It makes neural pathways in your brain and you just become a more full round rich human being however mundane that creativity is but then attaching it to a sense of identity where it's like i must be successful i you know i used to have this silly mantra of i must have three books published by the time i'm 30. well it's like well so i've got one so what am i a failure i can't tell myself these mantras in my head so i'm still learning how to to live with that but um i see it a lot because a lot of my friends are, are writers and musicians and screenwriters and it's a real slog in the, in the industry to try and get your foot in the door and um, rejection. Some people take it well, some people don't. I don't take it so well. I just try to tell myself that's okay. Like take Mark Twain, you know, they call him the great brain, the great father of American literature. People would say he's probably the greatest American writer. Maybe, maybe not. He was rejected 293 times. So that's 293 people who rejected one of the greatest writers in American history. So I have to tell myself that, but um, it's hard when you, you do have that, it's tied to your sense of worth as an artist. So you just have to kind of learn that there's other things that are of value. Like now, what I value more than anything is my relationship with my wife. And um, if you'd said to me, like when I was young, oh, you'll have a loving, healthy, wonderful relationship with a woman that you'll be with for 10 years and you'll be madly in love with her. I would have said no way because of the role models I had in my dad and mum and their relationship. You know, he proposed to her on the edge of a volcano. Three years later, they were divorced. It was like, it's a terrible romantic novel. So I never would have thought I had that, but now I have that. I realise I value that so much more than what I valued before, which is I have to be published, I have to be a writer. So as you grow older in life, especially as artists, I feel like you can look at what you value and realise your sense of 
self-esteem doesn't have to just be tied to that. You know, it can be tied to other things. Our final topic of conversation, Liam, and it's one I try and have with all my special guests, which is a general natter and chat about mental health. So firstly, and circumstances including or excluding, I guess, how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? I think, you know, to give it a short answer, all in all, it's pretty good. I'm still learning to deal with my anxiety. It's something I'm only really admitting in the last few years. People don't really know about me because when they see me, they just think, oh, he's really gregarious and funny and outgoing. But it's like there's a huge, like, I've constantly got butterflies just for the most mundane things. Like um, 10 minutes before doing this podcast with you, I'm, I'm sitting there feeling sick with anxiety. It's just ridiculous. And it's it's just how I am. I was also a chef for a few years and I'd go into the restaurant with people I've worked with, you know, for a year or two, people I'm, you know, we go have a drink, we have a laugh, I'm friendly with them. And as I'm walking into work, I'm sick with nerves to go into a workplace with people that I know and like. It's just, I try to deal with it by attacking the thing. So like, I'm nervous about coming on this podcast. I could easily go, you know, just message you and be like, hey mate, I'm pulling out, I'm too nervous. But instead I'm trying to attack it and engage with it. And hopefully I feel like if I do that enough, that will rewire the neural pathways in my brain. I'll have new kind of mechanisms. And after 10 years or so, the anxiety will subside. That's the main one for me. Like, And obviously living through lockdown the last year, it's like a lot of people just doom scroll and feed that anxiety. So I'm not the biggest fan of being on my phone. I keep my friends tend to get annoyed with me to constantly like being like an old man. Like I don't have Snapchat. I don't have Instagram. I, you know, I'm always telling them, get off your phone. But because of lockdown, I've been more on my phone than ever because... I don't see people. I don't hang out with people. And that's been the hard part mentally, like realizing, even though I am a bit of an introvert and I, I'm not the most outgoing, suddenly realizing how much I value human beings. Like I haven't seen or hugged my mum in over a year. I know she lives alone. And obviously with her mental health, that kind of hurts me. So um, that's the main thing. Like, yeah, the anxiety combined with just not being able to see people over the last year, that's been, that's been really hard. Yeah, I get you, mate. And I think it's really important that sometimes we have to play a zero six four formation against our anxiety and step out of that comfort zone because it's something I have to do. And it's so scary at the start. But once you get through it, it feels like the best feeling in the world to kind of get out of that comfort zone, reach that stage of accomplishment. And then what you thought was scary becomes your comfort zone in a way. Mm, exactly, exactly. Like every time you do it, it just creates new little patterns of behavior. And the more you do it, the deeper the patterns get. That's what I mean by those neural pathways in your brain. Like your brain, you start to rewire your own brain through doing those kind of changes in patterns of behavior. I think I talk about it in the book with Damien, where it, I think we describe it as like, you know, a plaster. You're really nervous to pull that plaster off. You think it's going to hurt. You think it's going to hurt. You think it's going to be excruciating. And then you pull it off and you go, oh, wasn't that bad, actually. And it's that kind of thing. What age do you think you were, mate, when you first realized that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? Yeah, I can, I can pinpoint it to a very young age. It was secondary school. And what was I? It was first year, year seven. So I was, what, 12, 13? I would constantly bunk off school. And it's because I was really anxious about interacting with both my fellow students and the teachers. Like, I was just anxious about the whole thing of, like, being, like, I hated maths. I was awful at maths. Being in a maths class and being asked a question in front of the whole class and being, you know, looking stupid or you know, being on the football pitch and not being able to like talk to the older boys properly or like just all these kind of social interaction elements scared me. I realized that I was experiencing feelings on the inside at a young age because as I would go to school, I'd get these horrible knotting 
butterflies in my stomach to the point that I'd want to be sick and then I'd just bunk off school or I got out of it after about six months but for about six months I was going to the um what do they call it at school you know like the, when you're sick you go see the nurse or whatever I forgot the, the name of that little room but I'd go there and be like oh I'm sick I'm sick and like I wasn't sick I was just really scared to be in school basically and so I'd say I was sick and like the nurse knew I was pulling a fast one because I was constantly in there. It's like, you know, what was I eating, for God's sake? I was in there every every day saying I was ill. And then that kind of feeling of anxiety, I realized, was also a feeling of guilt. Because then I'd feel guilty because I'd come home and I'd lie to my mom. I'd say, oh, yeah, I've been at school. Or, and then the school would message her, you know, and say, no, he hasn't. Those kind of were connected to that guilt and anxiety. And it's got better over the years. But, yeah, still trying. What age do you think you were when you had the first conversation with someone about your mental health? Who was it with? How did it feel? And looking back, did it feel like a big burden or weight had been lifted? Or did it feel like something quite insignificant and normalised? It's quite telling that the first conversation was would be almost a decade later with my wife when we were just, just meeting up. She is the first person I've ever opened up to when it comes to things like that. And um, <laughs> it's only when you actually open up and then you realise suddenly that you're bawling in someone's arms like a baby that it's like, oh, maybe this has been a bit more traumatic than I realised because you just haven't talked about it. So, you know, it's just this thing you've not dealt with. But um, yeah, that was, I was probably what, 22? So it would take another 10 years for me to even open up about these kind of feelings. What triggers do you have that affect your mental health? It could be a social environment, a sound, a sensation, or have you not figured all of them out yet? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I have triggers per se. I guess I, I, I do. The, the one that certainly rings true, and I've mentioned it a few questions ago, is a uh, rejection. I take rejection strongly. I'm still trying to actually figure out why that is. I tend to be a bit analytical and intellectual in life. Maybe figuring out the why won't help me. I don't know. But I still want to figure out why I do take rejection hard. I can just wall up and get very defensive. I feel like I want to learn how to deal with that better. Not just in my writing in terms of taking rejection from an agent, but like, you know, it can be small mundane things, you know, like maybe not being invited to something with a friend or things like that. It's just I'll take that rejection quite hard and I can get a bit neurotic about things. I feel like I'm getting better with it, but I still need to understand the why, because it's been there since a young age. I don't know where that's come from. What tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health, Liam, or help you feel better? Which ones have you found that have worked for you? Maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? The first one's going to sound silly, but gardening. <laughs> like, I can't speak highly enough of pottering around the garden like an old little man. The Buddhists used to do it. It's why Japan has this long history of community gardens. There's a real understanding of like when you're one with nature, you're one with yourself. You feel calm, you feel centered. Me and the wife were in the garden yesterday for about four hours, just making like herb boxes and things. And it's like, you're not thinking about anything for one. You're not taking in stimulus. You, you know, you're not on your phone. You're not on whatever, Instagram or Facebook, where you're not watching a film. You, you haven't got any of that kind of societal technological stimulus. It's just you with yourself and nature. I really can't recommend that highly enough. And if you haven't got a garden, like go to community gardens, help people out who have gardens, you'll find, oh, you really love this. But the other one that me, me and my wife do, and my wife's the one who's got me into that, is um, meditation and like kind of being mindful of things. I mean, mindfulness has become a bit of a kind of a, a cottage industry. It's become monetized, to be frank. But meditation is like massive. You know, you don't have to sit there for an hour dressed in robes, going bong. Like, you don't have to do that. You can just literally go on YouTube, find a kind of talking meditation video, 10 minutes, lie down on the bed, lie down on the floor with a pillow. And you'll find that that just really kind of centers you. And, and then you're more in tune with what you're feeling. And then that's when you start to feel better, when you actually know what's going on inside of you.
Uh, so I couldn't speak highly enough for meditation and gardening. Spot of FIFA helps as well. We've talked so much about toxic masculinity, Liam, and I think a lot of what you describe in the book with Damien ends up being positive masculinity by the end of the book and talking to your friends and empathising. We talk a lot about positive masculinity on this pod and hopefully in a few more years and a few more pods, maybe just masculinity will be positive masculinity. Maybe I'm naive or optimistic about that. How would you define positive masculinity and what qualities should a man have to exude to be described as positively masculine? It's interesting you ask that question because um, I've been invited with um, Bernd Legraff basically next year to be run a module on men, intimacy and relationships with the Affinity Academy. But I feel very young to be doing that, but it's because I am a young man. I'm writing on these issues and the module is all about men and their issues with intimacy. But um, part of that is defining what we mean to be masculine. Part of the issue is that the definition of masculinity is both very narrow and very broad. So what I mean by that is a lot of men will say, oh, it's tough being a provider, earning the most money, not being weak, not crying. But at the same time, the definition in the modern sense has become really broad because you've got like, you know, the hipster man, you've got, you know, the, the guy who has a long beard and looks for the best blackhead cleanser in the shop. And like these kind of things that our dad's generation is just like, what the hell are you doing? You know, like you pluck your eyebrows, you exfoliate, what's this? You know, that's not masculinity. So trying to find a definition of masculinity to 21st century for me, like has to kind of bring in all these elements. I think for me, sensitivity and emotional intelligence have to be brought in to the sphere of what we define as manhood and masculinity because they've just been so absent from what we would traditionally define as masculinity. And this isn't a 21st century, 20th century thing. This is going back thousands of years. And this is again, you know, I was talking about earlier about that statistic of 97% of women have suffered some sort of sexual abuse or allegation or attention from men. We have to look at society and be like, well, then why are men like that? Why is the definition of masculinity manhood creating men who are doing that? And for me, it has to come back to a more sensitive emotional intelligence model applied to masculinity. And that starts always for me young education like obviously parents play the biggest role but as a society we can't parent what parents do inside their own homes but we can as a society think about the education we do in institutions and I think to a large extent you need to get boys not men you need to get them when they're boys and you need to have there's a kind of dialectic going on in terms of so you're either a positive man or a toxic man you know you're either a sensitive man or you're not sensitive and it's like things aren't that black and white and to a deeper extent, um, we do it a lot in modern society now where we separate out majorities and minorities. So masculine over here, female over there. For example, we have passed out phrases and I'm obsessed as a writer with the kind of actual language we use in society because it says a lot about what's going on psychologically. And, you know, a phrase that everyone will know, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. And it's a funny little phrase, but for me, it's not men are from Mars, women are from Venus. It's all of us are from Earth. And it's like this thing that we constantly do in our language and society. We create these walls. We create groups. I'm like a socialist, liberal, progressive, you know, like I'm an antithesis to a conservative. But yet I have a lot of bones to pick with my side, so to speak, my liberal side, because they're doing things in society that I think are just entrenching the very issue you're trying to solve. So, for example, you look at the huge incel community in America, you look at the Hikarami in Japan, if I'm pronouncing that right, Hikikomori. These are huge groups of men who are basically, they're hearing liberal academia go, you're toxic, you're toxic, you're toxic. And then society is surprised when these men are acting out of aggression. And it's like, well, if you tell a whole section of society you're toxic, 
one, they're going to start probably behaving like that because that's the only message they're getting. It's reinforcing, but also they're going to instantly wall up to you. So in terms of a more positive definition of masculinity, it would one, be watch the language we use when we talk about masculinity, because they're just words, but words mean a lot to people. They, they stick with people psychologically. And then we need to just kind of present boys at a young age with a more emotional, intelligent way of understanding what their masculinity means. When I was young, I think of my sisters constantly telling me, you shouldn't do this to a girl, you shouldn't do that. It's okay to do this. It's, and that they were very much, because they were, you know, they as young women were realizing, I was too young to realize it, but they were realizing, well, we've had these interactions with men. We don't like them. We've got a young brother. Let's raise him with these values. And I think that's a huge part of it. We can't just break it down into women over here, let's support their cause, you know, me too. And then men over here, let, let's demify them. It's like, well, no, it's a whole interconnected societal thing. That's where a kind of broader, deeper definition of positive masculinity has to come from. I share so much of what you just said, Liam, especially around linguistics. I spoke to a previous guest about how she doesn't like this term real men because you can use it to whatever definition you want and you can actually demonize other men for not being your definition of a real man so i definitely agree with you there i spoke to a previous guest called bill costello about the whole rise of incel culture and how the vast majority of incels are non-violent but if you consistently demonize a community and you don't let them see a way out or you invalidate their feelings you can just make everything a lot worse i'll definitely send you that pod as well after we finish as a final question and this is a broad one. What more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or their mental health if they want to do it? I think, honestly, I think platforms like your one. So, for example, more platforms where we understand as a society that basically men have had the better lot for the last 5000 years. Let's not joke about it. We absolutely have. But being woke, so to speak, being mindful of that doesn't mean that we can't also then say, okay, well, men have had a far easier ride than women for the last 5,000 years. Therefore, let's put all our resources and platforming into women or minority groups. Absolutely do that, but also consider the fact of what you're doing to men in that, like you say, if you're rejecting them, then you're only going to entrench those kind of issues that are arising in incel communities and all the rest of it. So it sounds a bit mundane, but like just do both simultaneously. Again, it's this kind of like holistic view. Don't separate groups. If we can bring these groups together to actually have more dialogue between each other, I think that's a starting point because um, in our woke kind of PC culture, there's this there's a constant stratification of different groups in society. And I understand why that takes place. You know, I grew up in London, extremely multicultural. All my friends were Ethiopian, Somalian, Nigerian. I understand that stratification, why it happens in a kind of neoliberal, globalized world. But ultimately that is detrimental that's why we're seeing these things because that stratification is just leading to more and more echo chambers more and more people being separated in their kind of little values the ultimate way to bring it together is to kind of have conversations with all the groups included obviously that is challenging but it's the only way we're going to move forward as a society but obviously that's a very broad point i'm making i think that's the only way we need to kind of understand even in liberal woke society our intentions are right again the actions we're doing might not be the best. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thank you to Liam for being my special guest on this episode and for letting me check in with him. 
I'll put a link to where you can buy Screen to Screen and follow Liam on social media in the show notes. As always, thank you to all the vendors who tuned in. If you like what you've heard, give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. Or if you like what we're doing here at Vent, please consider supporting us either through rating and reviewing our podcast on Apple Podcasts or supporting our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent. Vent.